Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. You're listening to DraftKings Network. This is the GM Shuffle realize that this season in 2023 there will be 10 running backs making 10 million dollars or more in cash we have tripled plus the amount of 10 million dollars or more running backs you're listening to the gm shuffle with michael lombardi presented by DraftKings and v here is femi abebefe Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and Beast. And I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Our producer, Elliot Bowman, with us on the ones and twos. Michael, hope all is well, man. Did you have a happy Father's Day yesterday? We talked yesterday morning, but how'd the rest of your day go? Uh, Father's Day is always great. You know, it's always wonderful. You got to appreciate your sons, you know, and uh, enjoy them as they celebrate their fatherhood, too. It's always good. So, yeah, it was great. Great weather, beach day, Femi. You should have been there. It was awesome. Yeah. It was. Uh, it's uh, the start of the summer as we kick it off on June twenty first, which is the start of summer here on the uh, all over. So yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, eventually, everybody will get back here, and then the best part of being uh, happy Father's Day is seeing your grandkids. So that makes yeah. it the best. Nice. They got plans to come back. Uh, come back east and hang out for a little while. We'll have the whole crew here soon. I can't wait. Yep. Nice. Nice. Well, we'll get some stories then. Uh, with the whole crew being there, the, gra- the grandkids <laughs> will, will be running maybe around. Maybe Dominic will make an appearance on the GM. We'll get Dominic and Leo on the GM shuffle. See if we get those two going back and forth. You know, we'll make we'll make Leo love Justin Fields. We'll make Dominic not, and then we can have those two guys have a, the same conversation you and I have. Yeah, I was gonna Might say, be interesting from a six and a five year old perspective, right? They can host the pod for us. We can take a day off or something. There you go. <laughs> no, that'll be a lot of fun. We do have a fun pod. That is on deck for you guys. Owen Eastwood, who's a performance coach and motivational speaker, the author of Belonging. He's going to join us later on as we continue our literature and leadership series here to kick off the week on the GM Shuffle with Michael. Let's get into a topic that has been yeah. discussed many of times over the last few handful of years now, but especially this offseason in particular, and that is the running back market. Right now, Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, they're looking for extensions with their own teams. Jonathan Taylor, now eligible for an extension with the Indianapolis Colts. He's in pursuit of a long-term deal. Then, of course, we have the free agent guys, Dalvin Cook, Kareem Hunt, Ezekiel Elliott. The list goes on and on and on about these running backs. And right now, it feels like we're a little bit at a stalemate here, but I know you want to kind of set the record straight on what's actually going on, despite what the narrative might be. Well, I mean, I think this the, we have this ability to create a narrative based on someone complaining. Saquon's complaining that, you know, he's just, you know, he's not getting his fair due and he's not feeling respected. And I don't think there's an organization in football that respects the players they draft more than the New York football giants. I mean, you know, they're overly respectful. They're overly uh, protective and loyal to those guys. And, you know, so I think that's completely wrong. But, But what I think is really interesting is no one takes the time to study 
the market. I mean, there was a big article about how it's an injustice to running backs, how they're not getting paid and how, you know, it's not fair and, you know, and all this crap. But it's really just crap because if you do any homework at all, uh, if you do any homework at all, you realize that this season in 2023, there will be 10 running backs making $10 million or more in cash. Now, whether Joe Mixon continues to make that, we don't know. But he's one of the 10. I mean, James Conner is going to make $8.6 million this year for the Arizona Cardinals. Why they would pay that as bad as they are, why they would allocate that much money to a running back, I don't know, but they are. So, and then you go back to the 21 season, there were three. There was, there was Aaron Jones, Nick Chubb, and Derrick Henry. And then in 22, there was Henry, and there was Zeke, and Kamara. That was it. So we have tripled plus the amount of $10 million or more running backs in the league. I mean, when you think about it, Jacobs, Pollard, and and, and Barkley all got franchised. So mm-hmm. there's three teams that value, and it's not the team's fault that the number in terms of the value of the position doesn't rise. Because ultimately, running backs don't get a second contract. And it's rare that they do. And so they don't play into the... the why do, why are the quarterbacks' numbers keep rising? Because they get second contracts. They get third contracts, right? And the market keeps going up. Running backs, it's just a, a short lifespan. And the other factor is they don't have... They, the age affects their performance. I mean, we see it with Zeke, right? Mm-hmm. He's not the same back that he was two years ago, even though he's not hes not even over 30. So I think it's kind of an unfair characterization. And the teams are taking advantage of the, of the rules, just like they take advantage of the tight end rules. That's why Evan Ingram is designated a tight end. That benefits him. And Mikhail Pitts is going to complain when his contract's up that he's designated a tight end when he's truly really a receiver. I guess the pushback from a lot of people it is, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, is that you mentioned that the quarterback contracts are rising, and it makes sense. That's the most valuable position in the game, probably the most valuable position in all of sports. But as the cap continues to go up, what percentage is what I'm curious about are the running backs taking up? Because if they still stay at this $10 million as the cap continues to go up, new TV deals kicking in, you know, Sunday ticket now with YouTube TV, like there's an influx of revenue coming in for the NFL – but it almost feels like the running back contracts are still kind of staying, staying kind of stagnant as we sit here in 2023 and maybe even beyond. Well, I mean, you studied economics in college, right? Mm-hmm. It's really not a complicated matter. It's called supply and demand. When the supply is high, right, and the yep. demand is lower, and there's more, and every year the supply increases, the numbers are never going to go up. It's exactly what happened. What I mean, it's the perfect economic study is what happened in Minnesota. They signed Matson for a cheaper deal. They feel like Matson's a little bit below Cook. Whether that's right or not, I don't know. But they get, they picked up seven million dollars or five million dollars of cap room. And it's just it's supply and demand. It's a simple economic equation. So even as the cap goes up, as long as the supply is high, it's not going to affect the running back market. Now, if you get a dominating player like someone in the passing game. I mean, Barkley averaged under seven yards a catch. I think if you were averaging in that 10 yards, nine, nine, six, I mean, Eckler averaged that. You know, Eckler's due to make $6.25 million this year. He's going to get incentives up to eight. So, you know, Jamal Williams signed a contract this year with New Orleans. He makes He's going to make $5 million, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he scored 17 touchdowns, I think, last year. Yeah, he, I think the franchise record for the Detroit Lions. I mean, he was he was the Mariano Rivera of short yardage. He closed <laughs> it, right? He did. 
But, I mean, you know, uh, and, and so what they're saying is we'll find somebody else who can do it. I mean, Sammy Perrine got paid, what, under $5 million by Denver. And he, this is his – he was on the market. At, well, he was free. He, was, he got cut by Washington. They kind of bounced around. He's kind of regenerated his career because of the passing game. So I, I think it's a lot of nonsense, Femi. I really do. I think Cook will get paid. I would pay Cook. I've said that all along. I think Cook's worth the value that he, because he's worth it in the passing game. Well, you brought up Eckler, and I want to ask you about him because you mentioned how he is one of those nine, ten yards per catch kind of guys, but even he can't get paid. Like, is that just right. his his char- the Chargers that are just be able to kind of keep him down so, there, or or should he have maybe tried to force his way out even more? I know he tried to kind of ask where for was a trade, gonna, who was going to go pay him, him yeah. Who's going to go pay him? I mean, but, Cook, t- but should Cook teams pay he, him though? But Cook says he's got a chance at a job at not you know Cook's like I'm not going anywhere unless I get nine or ten million mm-hmm. for one year, and I think he's worth it. Who's paying it? I don't know yet. I mean, look at Fournette. I mean, Fournette, you know, he's not involved in the pay. I mean, he made $7 million last year for the Bucks. He's still out of it. He's not going to – and he's got $2 million guaranteed. So he's not even trying to get back in the league. I mean, Kareem Hunt made $5 million. He's not even going to get back in the – no, actually, Kareem Hunt made $6.25 million. He doesn't even have a job. Yeah. I mean, the market is what it is. If you're a general manager – of the New York Giants or of the Las Vegas Raiders, knowing all that you know, and I'm sure it would be hard to explain this to the player because the player's only thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about the macro sense of the market. But what's the conversation like with Saquon Barkley? Is it, hey, man, we love you. We, we obviously value you, but we just can't get up to that number for what you've been producing. Like, How do you kind of go about that in the negotiations? I think it's to me it's the same thing. Look, we want you. We want you on our team. We think you three years. The numbers got to be conducive to three years. You know, if you want seventeen million a year, that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen anywhere. Yeah. But if we could find a happy medium, we would love to have you on the team as long as we can impact the passing game. I mean, they they've made it work with Derrick Henry. I mean, same thing with Nick Chubb. I mean, is there a better full runner than Nick Chubb in the league? I think Nick Chubb's going to make ten point four million this year. It's just about you got to accept that that this is what it is. You know, as they said in the Irishman, it is what it is. It is what it is. And that's what it is. So did these teams then make a mistake by tagging these players? Because now the conversation is set at $10 million, though, because that's where the conversation starts because they're set to make that if they just play on the tag. Right. But, okay, so I'll give you a three-year deal at $32 million. They're not going to want to take that, but I would pay that. I mean, you get a guarantee, and you guarantee it. Guarantee eighty percent of it. Yeah, I mean, you're guaranteed to get it. You know, I yeah. mean, I think to me that's that's the challenge. The challenge is that they don't want to sign these guys. They don't want to sign them to that. They don't want to get into that fifteen, sixteen million mm-hmm. range. I think the ten, eleven million dollar range, they would sign these guys. Yeah, well, I guess it de- depends on if these guys want to sign at that right. I don't know what the contracts that have been offered out there. I don't know if you've heard anything on any of the facts and the figures. Nobody has sent out any sort of thing well, about I what mean, the deals I, are like. I know the Giants are trying to sign Saquon. I just think Saquon wants way more than 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 what he's what the Giants want to pay. Well, yeah, well how much do they want to pay? I would assume they want to pay right around eleven million a year. I think that's probably the right number. Because the market dictates it, Femi. You just don't invent a number. It's like if you're going to go buy a home, right, and the mm-hmm. neighborhood says this is the homes are worth this, do you pay two hundred thousand more for the home? You're going to, you, no. You, no, you don't do that. But but that goes to my point. They're like, should these teams have maybe rolled the dice? If the market is saying Miles Sanders can only get six, maybe the open market says that Saquon can only get nine, and you don't have to go up to eleven, twelve million if you're the New York Giants. Maybe right. you could have got him cheaper. Well. 
I mean, that's certainly the case, right? That's certainly the case. But at ten million, why wouldn't you do it? It's, it behooves you to do it to protect your interest. No, yeah, it definitely does protect your interest. But I, th- I think we're kind of at this stalemate because we almost get this number set because, like you mentioned, the, the market dictates what the franchise tag number is because it's the average. I mean, it's the average of the top five percent of the contracts at now, that I, position is how they dictate. It wasn't what the tag made. Is. This this market wasn't made up. No, yeah, but. Maybe they could have got below that market if, if they went ahead and let those guys kind of test the waters and see that, hey, not many people are out there looking to spend a whole bunch of cash on these free agent running backs there. Because like you said, Dalvin Cook, he wants 9 to $10 million. If that's what he wants, nobody else wants to play at that level right now, at least as it pertains in June. Maybe as we get closer to training camp, we'll see teams, okay, all right, let's bring Dalvin Cook in because we think he's a really good player. But as of right now, I mean, it's been, what, a week and a half? You could have called Dalvin Cook and brought him in if you really wanted him that bad. Well, you say that people bring them in. It's just a, can they get a contract done? You know, rarely do you know. It's all about the contract, isn't that people aren't interested? It's all about the contract. Remember, you know, most fans just look at the player. Mm-hmm. Teams look at the player and the contract. Those two things have to be in harmony. They, they certainly do. And as of right now, they're not <laughs> at least for the running backs and 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 what is happening later on this offseason. I think we'll, we'll we'll see later on, maybe as we get closer to training camp, that some of these guys will start to get signed. There's going to be a shoe that drops. I'm not sure which the first one is going to be. Do you have a prediction on which of these guys is going to get paid first? Uh, you know, I, I don't. I would say Barkley because I know the Giants want to sign him. All right. But maybe Big Blue will kick off this big running back spending later on this offseason. We're going to take a quick break. I want to get to a soundbite that you shared on your Twitter from Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin. Let's take a quick break. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. All right, all the teams are now done with mini camp. Training camp's coming up later on in the month of July, about four weeks away. Training camp, I can't wait for it to actually get here. We're going to see some football being played rather soon. And I think a cool message, and you shared this on your Twitter, from Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin about the expectation for the players between now and the start of training camp. Let's play that clip here first, and then we'll get your thoughts on this on the other side. Here's Mike Tomlin of the Steelers. You need to continually be a guy on the rise. 
That is a reasonable expectation, as opposed to just coming in here putting in time. What do I mean by that? I mean the things that made you viable in the past aren't going to be the things that make you viable moving forward. You better be continually getting better as long as you're sitting in rooms like this. I ain't doing my job if I'm not pointing that out. You guys that have been here and know what it's about, man, we expect you to be significantly better. Hear the words. You were a young guy, man, we might have tolerated mental errors. A year ago, we'll have less tolerance for it moving forward. It's just a reasonable expectation. I could talk, I could listen to him talk for like hours. <laughs> Michael, like, like he's, he's the best, honestly. I mean, he is so good at being able to tell the players what is expected of them, right? So yeah. he's leading. We're going to talk to Owen Eastwood in the next block about how to bring a team together. And part of that messaging is to give expectations. I think so many of these college kids that come in, they think they're all still on scholarship. No, they're not on scholarship. They're like a lawyer. They got to book their time. They've got to justify what they're doing. And you can't, we used to call these players national anthem players. You can't play the national anthem every day where every day they learn, they have to relearn what they learned yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. You got to be able to make progress. There's expectations to move forward. And it goes back to the great Kobe Bryant. I mean, and Kobe said it really well. You know, he said, why, why would I, why would I pass the ball to a teammate who shows up 10 minutes before practice and leaves one minute after practice? Like, unless you're willing and dedicated to the team, to the cause, to the work, to be improving, then you're not going to get any better. And we keep harping on this podcast about the, the great teams make their, their, the players take jumps. They get players better. That, that's what Tomlin's trying to get to his team. That's why you can sit there and say, you know, they're, they're, they're not as talented as Cleveland. But that leadership, that ability to motivate is the separation between Cleveland and, and Pittsburgh right there. I mean, he gets more out of his players than Cleveland's getting out of their players. Now, we'll see if that changes this year. But for Cleveland to have less wins than Pittsburgh last year is a travesty. It really is. But we don't handicap leadership enough in this factor. We don't give that. We, we can become so much about talent and not about how to play the game and how to get the players to rise to the next level. Yeah, I think we've been a lot about talent and also a lot about scheme. And scheme is cool, like getting into the nitty-gritty of what football is all about. And like That stuff's awesome like for the football nerds out there, but a lot of this stuff comes back to development and, and having that culture and being able to set expectations. I mean, I always harken back to Pete Carroll and my time covering the Seahawks up there. And, like, there was – I mean, you can go back and just fast-forward the tapes two, three years ago. Seahawks fans wanted him fired because he was holding back Russell Wilson, quote-unquote. And now we're learning that it's actually the contrary. And Pete Carroll's development yeah. and actually being able to set that culture is how the Seahawks are consistently able to be a really good team. And one season removed from trading Russell Wilson, they're right back in the playoffs. Like, like, yeah, th- Steve- those are the things that like, we overlook, I think, as a society. Yeah, I mean, Steve Kerr tells a great story about that. I mean, Steve Kerr tells the story about when he was getting into coaching, you know, when he when he was thinking about transitioning into coaching, he went and spent time up with Pete Carroll. And he was walking around and, and, and spent two or three days, and finally Carroll comes over to him and says, you know, what is going to be your message? And Kerr really didn't understand it. What do you mean, my offense or defense? No, no, no. Like, what? who are you? What do you represent? Like, what's going to be your messaging? And then 
Carroll went into this whole dissertation about what he learned from Walsh and what Walsh taught him about how you have to set a standard of excellence and how you have to have everybody rise to that standard of excellence and that it's deeper than just this guy's a good player, that guy's not a good player. It's why, you know, New England doesn't give out starting jobs unless they get earned. You know, people say, well, he's going to be the start. Well, he's got to earn it. People have to earn things. And that's what Kerr learned from he learned that from Pete, and that's where Pete's able to, to, to drive that. And I think it's so, it's so important. And, and we sit there and, and bring in coaches in terms of – and we spend all this time on what offense you're going to run. Who are you going to hire? You know, what would you, who's the offensive line coach? Instead of saying, what is your messaging to the players? Like, who are you? Like, what are you all about? You know, what, what, is, what is our organization going to represent? That, that's a powerful thing, and I, and I think that's something that Mike does as well as anybody, and Mike's a born leader like that. I yeah. mean, it's remarkable that Mike was able to develop these skills, whether it's from his parents, whether it's from some coach at William & Mary, I don't know, but Mike has the power to do that. I mean, at such a young age, too. I mean, he, he became a head coach at, what, late 30s or early 40s around that time? Well, yeah, he, said, like, he was only a defensive coordinator. So Al Davis called me one time. You know, we were looking for a coach, and he and he said, "Hey, I hear this guy in Tampa is really good, mm-hmm. and I think you know he's somebody we should take a look at." Which was surprising because he never wanted to talk to defensive coaches. He would bring him in for head coaching interviews, but he never did. When he hired John Gruden, it was between Gruden and Belichick for that job. Wow! And they took Gruden <laughs> because. You know, obviously Gruden was an offensive coach and, mm-hmm. you know, and Al could kind of manipulate Gruden how he wanted to because he'd never been a head coach before where it would have been a challenge for Bill. Although Bill would have been great for – they would have gotten along, mm-hmm. Bill and Al. A- 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 everything that Bill does, Al would have wanted. Mm-hmm. And so it would have really worked. But nonetheless, he didn't. So, you know, he says to me, we got to do – so I started doing a lot of work on Tomlin, asking people, you know, what's he like and, and – and the consensus was through doing the research was that, you know, Tomlin was this incredible engaging guy that he could get yeah. people to follow him. And, and that's a rare trait. You know, one of the things about, about uh, you know, we talked about Father's Day in the last block. I was talking to my son Matthew the other night, and, you know, he's back. And Garoppolo has that innate ability to kind of bring people together, even though he's not even practicing with them. Like, you know, players talk about it. Even past players, when you talk about going back to the New England teams, I mean, there's certain guys that have that, I don't want to call it charisma, but has that ability to motivate people. Tomlin has that. And so, and it was obvious back then. And then, so he leaves Tampa and he takes the defensive coordinator job at Minnesota. And the only reason he gets the Steeler job is because the Rooney rule's Mm -hmm. in place. And the Rooney rule is for the Steelers owners. They bring him in and he wows him in the interview. Okay, so if you're a young coach, did Mike Tomlin wow him because he wanted to play cover three? No. Did Mike Tomlin wow him because he knew Tampa too? No. Did Mike Tomlin wow him because, you know, he was an African-American? No. Mike Tomlin wowed him because he showed and demonstrated incredible leadership, incredible ability to connect to the players. And we're going to hit Owen Eastwood on this in the next block about how that connectivity is more powerful, how we becomes more powerful than I. And that's the messaging. That's where the league, I think, has really let down the minority hirings in this, is we're not teaching that. We're not working on that. We're not developing that. We're spending so much time on scheme. 
We're spending so much time on, okay, here's what we got to do here. Well, when there's no connectivity, and we've subcontracted it all out. Like, okay, everybody loves the Miami Dolphins, and I think Miami mm-hmm. has a very talented team. Yeah. But do you think Miami is going to win a Super Bowl if they're not connected, if all three units don't work together? No. Well, the head coach has blatantly admitted that he has nothing to do with special teams or offense, or defense. He's just calling plays. How does that work? Yeah, I don't see how that works. The subcontractor thing is something that we've hit on quite a bit, and I don't think we can do it enough just because, like, that's where the league is going. Everybody wants young offensive mind, pair him up with a veteran defensive mind, and that's kind of like the quote-unquote secret sauce to having a really good uh, coaching staff. But I think you need a leader and engaging is the right word to describe Mike Tomlin. I mean, oftentimes you'll listen to a head coach in a press conference, and it's just like, okay, like let me just kind of drown this out. It's like just kind of boring. You listen to a Tomlin presser, <laughs> like like he like you want to run through a brick wall listening to this guy, and he's just talking to the media. And now, like when you hear him right. talk to his team, it's like but you he's see not why talking those guys. to the media, Femi. Yeah. He's not talking to the media. He's talking to his team. Mm-hmm. See, I tell this to my son Mick, and if Matthew, anytime any young coach gets in front of the media, you're not talking to the media. You're talking to your players. You're talking to your owner, and you're talking to your fans. And so you have to be prepared and have a message for that. You just can't show at a press conference like you're, you know, oh, okay, here I am. I'm going to start talking. No. I got to have something prepared that I want to talk about. I have something that I need to discuss and I need a messaging to get to it. And how do we get to that? How do we get on point? How do we make that happen? And that comes through being able to do that. And that's where Tomlin is so good. Yeah, no, he, he is fantastic. And the thing that they always say in Pittsburgh is the standard is the standard. And I think that's a really good message. Hey, like, this is what you got to meet to play here. And this is what we expect you guys to do. And he outlined that perfectly for those guys. The expectation is that you guys need to be better. Guys who have been here before, you need to be markably better coming up later on this training camp. Like, like I think there's not going to be any sort of confusion in Pittsburgh of what is expected of those guys to do. And and it's why the Steelers, we we joke about it a lot of times here at VEASAN, just like, oh, like, they've never been below 500 under Mike Tomlin. But there's a reason for that. Like, like there's a reason why this team yeah. is consistently good. And even in a year last year where we all thought it was going to be a down year, they end the season on that run because development and just that culture and able to get those young guys to start playing better in the second half of the season. Right. And it's like Larry Brown said in this, you know, Larry Brown had this long interview with John Clark at WNBC here, uh, NBC Sports uh, Comcast here in Philadelphia. He spent an hour. They went through the whole process. And Larry had a great thing. Larry said, look, you know, I learned analytics when I was 14 years old. You know, I knew a good shot from a bad shot. You know, I knew defense could, you know, if you can play good defense, you got a chance to win. You know, I knew getting the opponent in foul trouble was important. Like, he went through this whole thing about analytics and about how it applies, how the game, even though the analytics are important, it still comes down to getting the players to understand their roles, accept their roles, and then buy in. And if you just basically have some nerd telling you, you got to run the ball out of 11 personnel, or you got to, that doesn't work. There's no connectivity. Yeah. And that's I learned this in my league. I've worked for some teams we had no connectivity. But, oh, we're going to hire this guy, we're going to hire that guy, and then the head coach is standing there. It makes no sense. Yeah, it's almost like we've lost sight of the macro stuff that matters and focusing on the micro. Because like those things matter. Scheme matters, of course. You need that stuff because football is chess on grass, but it can't be at risk of sacrificing the macro. 
And the macro yep. is ultimately how teams are able to build those cultures and to sustain success, which is what the Pittsburgh Steelers have done under Mike Tomlin. It's what the New England Patriots have done under Bill Belichick, what the Seahawks have done under Pete Carroll. There's a reason why those coaches kind of have all those things in common. All right, we're going to take a break. But on the other side, we continue so our excited. literature and leadership series. I'm excited for this one as well. you to love this one, Fami. Owen we'll Eastwood. You're going to take a lot of notes on this one. Now. Hey, I got the laptop ready to rock. Their Owen Eastwood performance coach and motivational speaker, author of Belonging, joins us next here on the GM Shuffle. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. All right, we're continuing our literature and leadership series here on the GM Shuffle. And this next guest, we are absolutely fired up to have him on. Owen Eastwood, a performance coach, motivational speaker, author of the series Belonging, the international number one bestseller. He's spoken with the England men's national team coach, Gareth Southgate, the South African cricket team, the command group for NATO, and we're lucky enough to have him here on the GM Shuffle. Owen, you are all the way across the pond in London, north of London, actually, right now. So uh, we appreciate you joining us in a different time zone, but how are we doing today? I'm doing great. Really excited to chat with you guys. Well, Owen, I, I got to tell you, your book's one of my uh, top five books of the year, maybe top five of all time. Uh, I, I thought it was incredible. And, and we are a football podcast, American football, not soccer. And we have this thing in our sport where we have ownerships that want to hire offensive coordinator. He coaches that team. Defensive coordinator coaches that team. Special teams coaches that team. And then the head coach is usually maybe one of the primary play callers, which kind of goes against everything that you wrote about in your book in the sense that great teams start out with us, not I. I do. I actually think we have overcomplicated how we try and get high performance. So I really do. I, I think you do need all those specialist expert coaches. It's wonderful, amazing. Um, but actually, sometimes we forget to do the obvious thing, which is just a group of people coming together here. How do we create an environment to get the best out of everybody? And I honestly don't think um, the story has changed from that which our ancestors faced. It's very, very simple. People need to know that their leaders care about them, that they're in a safe environment, that we've got a mission that we're all brought into and there's some form of purpose behind it, that everybody has a sense of belonging and everybody's got a role within the plan. And then we just freaking commit to it and go for it together. And really, it's always a story, isn't it? It's a story of where this team or this franchise has been where we are right now and what the opportunity is ahead of us. And I think that is really important, just that basic storytelling and making sure that every single person is engaged, not just the ones who happen to be starting the game. No, I think there's a lot to unpack with your book, Belonging Here. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was the safe space, because I know oftentimes in media and content creation, at times we're asked, hey, let's, let's brainstorm an idea and there's no idea that's bad. This is a safe space. But Sometimes people don't really feel that way. Like, How do leaders kind of foster that safe space and actually get people to buy into that to where they're not going to be feeling like, hey, if I present an idea and it gets shot down now that I don't really want to ever participate again? That's a great question. You know, people are not fools and people know whether an environment is safe or not. People know that. And it doesn't matter whether a leader stands there and says that I want everyone's ideas. Please bring it on. Please, you know, nothing's out of bounds. If they see someone do that, and then that person is then sidelined, 
then people know that actually this is not a great safe environment in order to challenge or bring new ideas. So it's it's less about telling people it's safe. And actually what leaders need to do is make sure that when they do open it up, that people are not compromised by the fact that they're honest. And that's, that's what people do. So often it takes a while for players to really understand where a leader is at with this. Um, and But if they see that actually if you bring an idea, you challenge the way we're doing things and there's no negative consequence, it's just accepted, then people will start to be more confident, feel it safer, and, and then you get a really empowered environment. But I've seen it so many times where people say that and then the first thing that happens is when someone basically challenges the status quo, all of a sudden they're sort of sidelined or ostracized. You know, you talk a great deal about your ancestry and your heritage in the book. And we have uh, this mindset where every week we're going to change uniforms. We're going to have different combinations of the colors. And <laughs> even our classic teams, the Boston Celtics, change their color tones at times to kind of placate this generational pool that we have to kind of all be different. How, would, how do you connect how would you tell someone to connect the past, which you believe is so important, to the future and develop those traditions through the history today? Well, at one level, my experience in life is that people who know where they come from and know who they are are more resilient and adaptable performing today. It's the people who don't know where they come from and don't really know who they are and what they stand for, I find are free fragile when they're put under pressure. So I, I, every team I work with, we do work to just not tell anybody the answer, but give them an opportunity to explore where they come from as a human and where what type of person they want to be. Same with an organisation. I mean, I think Manchester United are an interesting example over here mm. where after Alex Ferguson, where there's such a strong identity and a lot of success built on that. And his identity was actually built on the previous manager, famous manager, Matt Busby. So it went back like four generations. Um, but then after he left, they just have these completely different types of coaches and basically saying to them, you know, we'll be whoever you want us to be. And they've just failed to win anything in those years since Ferguson's left. I actually think with US sport, you've got more integrity around your traditions than actually a lot of other sports around the world. You know, if you look at the length of a baseball season or an NFL season, you've actually kept the integrity of the competition intact really well. Um, the salary cap, the way you create a competitive landscape, a lot of other sports. And in fact, I was watching F1 with my son yesterday and it was frankly boring because you know that Verstappen's going to win it and you know the competition's over a third of the way through the season. But the way that the US has organized its sport, the continuity from the origin story of your leagues, I absolutely love it. I know the NFL season increased it by one game, okay, but that's not too bad. Um, and a lot of other sports over this side, rugby, cricket, the competitions have fundamentally changed. Hmm. Players are now playing twice as many games as they used to, just purely to generate more revenue. And fans are actually getting sick of it and losing interest. So I think your traditions are still there. I really feel it when I watch your commentaries and your broadcasts. Uh, the Celtics, you know, I was absolutely <clears> delighted. They sent me a got a letter from them after they'd read Belonging and saying that So obviously some of the concepts I uh, write about have different names, but essentially the way I spoke about culture and heritage and tradition is the way that they think about themselves. 
Yeah. And, you know, that was a beautiful yeah, I, sort of reaffirming comment. Yeah, I could see that, Owen, because Brad Stevens is – I could see him – You be part of his book list because this is kind of what he's all about and, and I agree when you read your book you understand how to do those things and I think it's so important it's like when you talk about the all blacks and you say you know everybody wants to copy their rituals and yet they're not your rituals right so like it, to wear that fern on your chest it means something and I and I think that's something we or losing organizations in America lose sight of that is what does it mean to wear that? Well, you know, the, the idea uh, from Polynesian culture, which I set out in belonging is something which is universal. I've had great conversations with uh, people in the States about this as well, where just the very simple idea that whatever community you're part of, and in fact could be your family, but it could also be your sports franchise, whatever community, it has an origin story. And then that origin story is followed by a line of people with their arms locked together. And really, the metaphor is just that the sun first shone on our origin story, whenever that was, and slowly moves down this line of people and reveals each of us in turn. And as the sun comes onto us, really, what it is all about is that we get to write the next chapter of the story. And when we do that, we want to be a great guardian of all the things that came before us. And we also want to be a great ancestor for the people who come after us. And it's a really, very really simple. I was lucky as a 12-year-old, I got taught this by the, the Maori tribe that I'm part of. But when I talk about it around the world, people would say, you know what, that's a universal idea. I mean, that is what it is to be part of a community. So sometimes I think, um, you know, organizations should just chill out a wee bit, take a wee bit of a time out and think about it. What is the story up to this point? What are those great, great things that we actually want to continue with and that we want to pass down? As you say, we can't invent and manufacture just copy other people. I mean, what's indigenous to us? What's special about the way we do things? And make sure that this generation get a chance to live that, but also to evolve it and develop it. And just making sure that everything we do is going to make sure that we're competitive for the for the next few years and you know generations to follow. It's not just a selfish um, attempt for us to get glory for ourselves and leave the franchise in a mess at the end of it. Well, is it possible to have that kind of history and tradition without the positive results? Because I mean, in sports in particular, it's very bottom line business. And if there's not winning that's happening, oftentimes everybody gets fired and there's changes all across the organization. Like how do you, are, how are you able to kind of create those histories and those traditions when you're constantly changing and in search of those positive results? It almost feels like kind of a, a chicken or the egg kind of theory here. Well, I, I like your point there. You know, we are who we are. My, the Eastwood family, I'm part of, you know, we don't have a story of glory or great achievements or whatever. We're just a quirky, interesting cool bunch of people who care about each other and give everything their best attempt. So it's not all about glory. I think if, if we're talking about professional sport, the Golden State Warriors going back probably 15 years, a nice example. They actually didn't have a, a heritage really of success at all. In fact, I think um, before the, the later management teams, you miss a playoffs for something like 10 years in a row, which is just about statistically impossible in <laughs> the NBA, but they did. So what, what, what counts is that once the sun comes onto us, we actually have a decision to make. Do we want to, what's the chapter of the story we want to write here? And sometimes it's survival, 
for a lot of people around the world, a lot of communities and a lot of sports teams, they just need to survive. That's true. But other times we can actually be bold and dream and think, well, why couldn't we be the NBA champions? And, you know, I like the Warriors. I love they got a group of people together who got their mindset and there's, there's no good reason why we can't be competitive and win titles. And, and that's what I love about the idea of, you know, tradition, but also empowering us to do something to contribute to that right now. You know, you write about it on page 187. You have this concept of the three points of vision and where you kind of basically the leader or to get a sense of belonging, you share with them about what is the mantra of or the I don't want to call it a mission statement because I hate mission statements, but truly what is the fabric of the organization? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, it's really, really critical to take that time out to reflect on that. People want to belong to a story. So if I come into, the, say, the Green Bay Packers, right, as a New Zealander, there's something a little bit mystical, magical about them. I've never been there. I'm not a fan as such. But I'll tell you what, if I got invited in there or I got drafted by them or, or whatever, or even asked to go in and do a, a, a talk, I want someone to put their arm around me and say, this is who we are. This is the story of who we are. And what we know is that the evolutionary psychologists will explain to us is that when we are told the story of us, we have this massive surge in dopamine and oxytocin, these hormones which are extremely energizing. So it actually just makes complete sense for any organization to make sure that their people understand the story of uh, what people belong to. And then the piece that goes with it is simply, this is who we are, this is where we come from, these are the things that we've achieved, um, but this is where we're going. And you know, probably an underrated part of the sense of belonging is I want to belong to something really cool coming up. It's not just about belonging to something that happened in the past, that's good, can actually be quite energizing. But if I go into any professional environment, what I really want the people to do is explain to me, we're gonna be doing something very, very cool. This is gonna be one of the best experiences of your life. This might be the best 12 months of your professional life. And this is what we're gonna to do to write our chapter of the story. And this is how you fit in. And again, these are not really complicated conversations, but so often they're missed because we're sort of obsessed with the tactical technical. It's so complicated the way we organize ourselves. Um, and, you know, I just think, especially in a pre-season state, you just want to carve out a bit of time to just to really connect on a pretty straightforward level about what this is all about. I know one thing that you wrote about was about kind of welcoming in those new team members like you've kind of been talking about here. And I know one thing that my fiance, she started a new job about four or five months ago. And for her new job, she works remote from home other than one day out of the week. And one thing that she's always talked about with me about saying, hey, I don't feel like I'm actually a part of the team because we're doing everything virtually in, in kind of this post-pandemic world that we now live in where we can do things virtually and organizations might not meet together as much in person. Is it more challenging then to create this sense of belonging since we can kind of fire up Skype or Zoom and kind of talk to each other virtually, but not really in three dimensions where we can actually see each other and like feel each other and have like that touch and everything? Well, I, I agree with that. I think you do. There is a, in fact, it's proven there is a different chemistry that happens when people are physically together. You, you actually get yourself in a different hormonal state. And, you know, things like trust, very hard to develop that just online. You need that personal connection. So I agree. We're never going to go back to the world that we had, and that's fine. 
But we do need to carve out time in order to be physically together, I think, to build that really elite level of culture and connection. But having said that, particularly during COVID, I saw some leaders, including some you know, pretty famous sports coaches, who actually use the, the online opportunity in a different way. And for example, they would carve out specific time and just ask people things they were too busy to do in the office. For example, just tell me your story. You know, We've worked together for two years. I actually don't really know your story. Just take me right back. Mm. Tell me about your parents. I don't, uh, I, I've, had, I've, I've watched that, I've, heard, I've listened to that. I've also had them say, we've always been too busy to talk about the, the history of this organization. We're going to do it now. I've actually got the guys, the analysts together. We've made a beautiful film. And this is the history of this club, this franchise. And, you know, all, everybody in the team watching it together and having a conversation around it. I do think you can have really cool conversations and do good storytelling online. And to me, you, you definitely want to do that. But you also need to make sure that people are physically together in order to build that sense of belonging and trust. You talk about that uh, in detail in the book, and, and you cite the Ford Motor Company uh, ability to try to reconnect with their through a video. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was really, I mean, I've been lucky my whole way through my career. That was quite cool. That was a couple of years ago. They went back to Le Mans, I think, for the first time in about 40 years. And what was interesting is they really, as you know, they really are motivated to beat Ferrari. <laughs> it sort of seems to get their juices flowing. And that year they brought, you know, how many drivers there were in the Le Mans. It was either four or six. can't quite remember. I'm not a big motorsport person. But anyway, they brought these people in who were not really Ford people in order to compete and hopefully win Le Mans. And... I loved it because, well, obviously they reached out to me to help them, but what they ultimately did is they didn't want it just to be a tactical, technical race for it. They didn't think they'd get the best out of their drivers doing that. They wanted to immerse these drivers, including actually Scott Dixon, the indie driver from New Zealand, but they wanted to them to understand what it was to be part of Ford, even though they were only going to be doing it for like a week of their lives. So what they did is, what, well, one of the things they did is create this beautiful film, which is on YouTube, um, around this is who we are, Ford was born and baptized on a racetrack. That's how they got the money together to even start experimenting and develop a factory. And I just think that is really cool. And, this, and by the way, they went and won Le Mans that week. And I, I just think it's, that's nice. If we just look at that, they didn't need to do that. They were busy that week, but they decided to create a space to make sure that their people knew who they belonged to, that it wasn't just a transactional um, situation that they actually had some emotional engagement in, in representing Ford and beating Ferrari, and they went out and did it. It was nice. I think transactional is a really good word that that we oftentimes that that's how a lot of relationships are cultivated here in the in, in organizations or in sports teams. It feels like, hey, I need you, you need me. So like, just because we need each other, we're having this conversation versus the actual like genuine. Oh, like who are you as a person? Like, like, what do you bring to the team? This is what we do. Like, I feel like transactional more often than not, especially the older we get in life, because I mean, we all get busy with family and kids and all that stuff that we, we kind of keep things as just being transactional versus being genuine. Yeah, look, I know this might sound a bit corny, but I really believe it. Like, I think we don't have enough humanity in the way we work together a lot of the time. Um, you know, when I see good leaders, I love the fact that when someone is either drafted or selected or coming in, they actually sit them down. They sit them down and they say, hey, 
before we actually get started on the work, I just want you to know why you're here. This is what we love about you. This is what we love about your character, love about your story, love about your experiences. This is how we honestly think you can make us better. And we just want you to sit down for a moment and listen. This is a story of who we are. We want you to have that deep sense of belonging, but we need to explain what you're belonging to. And this is our story. And not only is the story up to this point, but we have this ambition over the next one, two, three years of what we want to achieve together, and we see you as part of it. And then, yeah, that's a very, you know, non-transactional way to get somebody integrated into your organization. Mm -hmm. You can do that in professional sport. You can do that in any workplace at all. I challenge anyone. And then also just create a space where they get to meet their peers as humans rather than job titles um, as well. So these are the people you're going to be working closely with. Let's friggin' get to know each other a little bit here and let's have some fun with it. You know, sports teams, we might put three people up on some bar stalls and just ask them where you came from, you know, where you grew up. Um, you know, not I wouldn't go too intrusive in those questions, but just to get a little, let's see the dignity of that person. And then that's how we start to build a bit of, bit of connection here. Um, yeah, I, uh, I love that. You know, I, I don't think it's I, I think we... We miss that so much. I mean, it's so busy. You're so busy trying to get to the next game as opposed to really getting the players or the performers to stay at a high level. But, you know, one of the things I often talk about with Belichick and with the great Bill Walsh, the people that I've worked for, is their dedication to their culture. You know, everybody has this sense that culture is like carpet. You lay it down and it's fine. You don't have to look at it. You barely have to clean it, right? It's just it's there. But there, you refer to this and explain this to our audience, the guardians of belonging. Who is responsible for making sure that we do this? Well, I believe we all are. And I don't like the idea that we're relying on a couple of individuals to drive the culture. I think we've all got an obligation. Recruitment's really, really important. We always have, we'll have occasions where someone will um, breach the code. I mean, that does happen. And then we look to our leaders and the ones you've just name-checked there are ones who would stand up and say, you know what, that's not who we are. We don't do things that way here. Give people opportunities to correct themselves or they move on. You know, weak culture is one where we talk one game and then we allow behaviour which is inconsistent with it just to live and we're sort of willfully blind to it. You know, that's not in any way going to create an inspirational environment. So we've all got an obligation. The, 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 one of the things I love about the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team is that they have no rules. There are no rules on their culture. If you're looking for a rule book, you're going to be sadly out of luck. But do you know what they do have? Is they've built an archetype of what it is to be an All Black. And this archetype is the type of person you would want to aspire to be and the type of athlete and the type of competitor. And it's when they have behavior they don't like they don't pull out the rule book and say you've breached rule five what they say is you know what what you did at training today is not a good version of who we are it's not the best version of who you are to be an all black we're better than that and i you know you can even tell from the way i've explained that from an emotional point of view that is a completely different ball game than telling someone they've broken rules so i think you know i, I don't know those teams intimately but i'm pretty sure a lot of the teams that you, you guys know really well, there is a real archetype, sense of identity of what it is to be whatever it is, you know, patriot or whoever. And that really drives them. And what I love about that as well, and I've seen it with the Marines when I've had some interactions with them, is that once you actually leave that organization, because you were so driven a 
around that archetype of being a good person and a great competitor, you take it with you for the rest of your life. You don't just become a, you know, um, slouch after you leave and sort of lack an identity. You you know that that was a great experience. It brought the best out of you, and you want to be that type of person for the rest of your life. And to me, as a coach, they're the sort of legacy success sort of metrics that I'm interested in. You know, I want people to have a better life for having been in the organisations and part of the cultures that you know that I've worked in. Yeah, that's development of, of human beings. I feel like that's a really cool point yeah. there. I think we talked about it earlier in the podcast about the Pittsburgh Steelers and their head coach, Mike Tomlin, how he's not just developing football players, but he's developing men. And, and you put up a thumbs up there, Mike Tomlin. I'm sure you've seen a lot of his clips out there because he's just he's off the charts. We love him here on this podcast. But I want to ask you, though, Owen, about your conversation with Gareth Southgate, the England men's national team soccer coach, because I think a lot of our, our audience is, of course, an American football audience since that's our podcast. But for those who are not familiar with what goes on overseas, like, like this team has a lot of pressure on them every single major tournament. I mean, if we think that the Dallas Cowboys and those types of teams have pressure, it's nothing in comparison to the pressure for the England men's national team to perform at the World Cup or to perform at the Euros. What are those conversations like with Gareth Southgate and kind of how you've kind of implemented some of the things from belonging into their own team? Well, you're you're right, and it's it's funny because the fans in England they don't care about world rankings. Like if you're ranked tenth or eighth, they don't they aren't interested in that. They they want you to win. So yeah, they, they, these guys are under incredible pressure to perform. But you know that that's what it is, right? So that's fine. I think to answer your question, you know, people think Gareth Southgate's very progressive manager. In fact, he just simplifies things. He has a group of human beings who are put in these incredibly intense pressurised situations. They're playing in a World Cup, literally in front of billions, and the people back home are desperate for them to be successful and can be quite harsh if they're not. So they are under a lot of pressure. So what does he do? Well, what he does is he creates a culture and an environment to reduce their anxiety levels. That's, and the reason you do that is so you keep them calm and you also conserve their energy rather than them stressing out the whole time about what an ordeal this is. They're actually nice and relaxed. And he does that because everybody, he has a relationship with every single one of them. He knows them. He knows about their family. He's been to their clubs. Sometimes he's been to their homes. So they are in a very, very pressurized situation with someone. They actually know in a real way cares about them as a human being. And that's not corny. It's completely true because he's a relational coach. He doesn't delegate that to an assistant coach. His relationship with each of them. So he talks about this is our purpose. It's not just about the outcome of the scoreboard. This is why it would be great for us to be successful. We represent a crazy, diverse, often divided country. But one of the few times they all come together, the whole diversity of the country is to watch us. This is a pretty cool opportunity, isn't it? Just to put a mirror up to them and say, actually, we're quite a beautiful country, actually. Look at the diversity of this team playing together. He just keeps everybody in the picture. Um, he's very clear in his instructions with them all. So he does. He does. He, he is very consciously trying to reduce their anxiety levels as people, so that they're calm and they've got great energy. And in previous regimes, the, the reality is a lot of them have been so exhausted by the anxiety of mm -hmm. performing that, that when they when you watch them on the field, they look sluggish. And people are going, "Are these guys fit or not?" But they've got energy. It's because they're exhausted by the whole experience. So to me, yeah, that's quite a simple principle. 
but possibly not that common. You you break down the. I thought this was really kind of incredible. You used the Latin term uh, about the team building and competitiveness. Can you talk about that? About how really it's building a spiritual moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how your uh, audience would feel about this term, but I believe it, and that is to build a champion team is a spiritual exercise. And the reason I say that is because the definition of spirituality has two parts to it. The first part is an individual connected to a higher cause than their own. Okay, so mm -hmm. take the box on that. And secondly is profound emotional connection between people. That's the other limb of spirituality. So to create a great team, and I'm not just talking about sport, I'm talking about anything and, and family as well, you want those two things happening. You want people who are connected to something bigger than themselves and having a really deep emotional connection with the people around them. So if we buy those, so I, I'm not even, I'm certainly not embarrassed about it. I speak quite openly about it. If a coach or a CEO comes to me and says, I really want to build a high-performing environment and build a champion team, I'm saying, okay, let's talk about it because that is going to be one of the special things we ever do. But that is, in its essence, a spiritual exercise that you're undertaking there. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, every championship team, I always say this all the time, championship teams, there's a connection. You know, there's, there's a locker room. I'm not saying they all go bowling together. I'm not saying they all sing Kumbaya together, but there's a connection. You know, I've won three Super Bowls, and the team liked each other in that locker room. There was a spirituality connection to it, and it was all different, you know, races, religion, but the team took its paramount place within the environment. And, and I think, to me, that's something that we miss in, in watching sports is when we don't see that, we just think it's going to turn around. And yet your book points it out really clearly about how you have to create this as leaders. I mean, if this doesn't, it just doesn't happen organically. It's got to be drived and, and the guardian has to make sure that it's happening every day. And talk about, you know, for your Polynesian background, when you saw Jackie Robinson's gravestone and what he had written on there, that goes back to your ancestry. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I think these are very universal ideas, what we're talking about here. Um, I was fortunate in the culture that I come from, they have these very powerful, simple ideas, which they explain to young people like me. Um, but I've found that all around the world, they resonate similarly. And uh, Ubuntu, which actually Doc, Doc Rivers adopted with the Boston Celtics when he won the championship with them, is based on an African idea that Nelson Mandela spoke about that the measure of our lives is our impact on other people for quite a very simple principle. And so right. the Celtics team understood that if they could add another chapter to the story and put their own banner up, then that would have an impact on a hell of a lot more people than just themselves. So, again, these are, yeah, I think good leaders are, are great at being able to take us back to those simple principles that I think our ancestors probably had a better understanding because they weren't as distracted by analytics and technology and strategy as we are. And I think we've got a little bit ahead of ourselves. We think all that, the answers lie in all that. But, you know, I'll give you an example. I worked with the South African cricket team for um, a number of years and they're the most diverse team in world sport. So on their first 11 players, we would have typically six different religions and ethnicities in that eleven. And obviously, you know, this, the, the troubled history of that country as well, the, the complicated context there. 
But they didn't they didn't ever talk about culture. It was all tactics and being busy and working hard and all those things. And you know, I got involved in 2010, and we actually decided we're going to have to start by building just a wonderful environment where everybody can be themselves and perform at their best, rather than trying to replicate one world view of what a good team looks like. You know, and I spent a chapter in the book talking about it, but I think the evidence from that was that with basically the same group of players, they'd not been world number one for more than a month previously. With the same group of players and a cultural transformation, they were world number one for four years. Wow. So coming back to your question, I really believe from a competitiveness point of view, it doesn't matter how great your players are, if they're in a compromised environment, you'll never get the best out of them. But you can actually have a group of players who aren't rated the best, create a great environment for them, and they'll overachieve. I think that's really great. I think I guess my final question, I know we're coming up to guess it on time here, Owen, is that is it just effort that's stopping most organizations from getting this sense of belonging? Or like, what are some of the other challenges that kind of prevent it? Is it just kind of the time and the effort and actually taking the time to kind of cultivate these relationships and to make people feel like they're a part of something? Well, what's interesting is if you look at the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team, Barcelona Football Club, I'm sure quite a few, you know, the Boston Celtics, some of those teams, if you go in there, there is a transmission of, of the story. So for generation after generation, they have been good at explaining this is who we are, this is our story, these are our values and what we believe in. Okay, so actually it's easier to go into an environment like that and maintain it. But often what happens is actually it's not. It's it's Either the coaches have created a team in their own image. It's not really about the franchise or the club. It's about them. And then they leave and everything falls away. And and so in those environments, someone actually has to do the work and go, you know what, let's just relax here for a moment and work out what is the story of who we are. And, you know, you do get some special leaders who are really, really good at doing that. But it is pretty random, I think as to whether you go to an organization, whether they've got all this in place or they haven't. Yeah, I, I think that's awesome yeah, stuff there. That, that's awesome. I, I love it. I, I Tell people where they can get in touch with you. I urge everybody that listens to this pod, any coach who's starting, whether you're a young coach, whether you're a, a seasoned coach, you need to read this book, Belonging, because I think it'll change your life in terms of how you build your team. But Oh, and share with people how they can get in touch with you, where they can buy your book, and all those things. Uh, well, I'm I'm on social media. I'm probably more on LinkedIn. I get most people coming through on that, and um, and also on Twitter. And the books on Amazon, um, and in the United States, it is published. So there's been some some bookshops. But, yeah, generally that's how people get a hold of it. And, yeah, it's been actually one of the great things has been how many Americans have reached out and connected and have had some wonderful experiences with them since the book came out uh, a couple of years ago. So thank you, and thank you for your support. No, we appreciate yeah, no, you tremendous. spending time with us here. Once again, the book, Belonging, the Ancient Code of Togetherness, and also the Secret Code of Elite Teams. Owen Eastwood, performance coach, motivational speaker, and international number one best-selling author. Owen, we appreciate you joining us here on the GM Shuffle. This has been a lot of fun, man. I think our audience is going to get a lot of good out of this. Thank you, Thank Owen. Thank you.
That's great stuff there. Owen Eastwood. That does it for the podcast here on this Monday. We'll speak with you guys on Thursday. Thank you to our producer, Elliot Bowman, who's with us on the ones and twos as always. Thank you to DraftKings. Thank you to VEASAN. Thank you to you, Michael. And thank you once again to Owen Eastwood, once again, the author of Belonging, the Ancient Code of Togetherness, the Secret Code of Elite Teams. We will talk to you guys on Thursday.